Welcome to the MBA series. This is a special multi-part series within Next Economy Now. We are going to review the arc of the learning journey that is presented in the Next Economy MBA online course. We are open sourcing the content from our course and hope to share it in this shorter, bite-sized format. We are launching this series because we were asked to do it by listeners like you. We're also doing it because we are writing a book entitled The Next Economy MBA, Redesigning Business for the Benefit of All Life, which will be published on May 23rd, 2023 by Barrett Kohler Publishers. This is a sizable series. There will eventually be 18 podcast episodes of course content and nine interviews with MBA alumni. We will be rotating every other week with our normal Next Economy Now interview format. We hope you enjoy it. Please reach out to us via our website, lifteconomy.com, with any comments, feedback, or requests. And now, on with the show. Hello, welcome to the Next Economy MBA book podcast series, episode 25, Next Steps for the Next Economy. I am Erin Axelrod, and I'm joined by Kevin Bayouk, and we are both worker owners at Lyft Economy. And I'm really excited by this episode because one of the things we try to do in our Next Economy MBA program is to share how the next economy is not some distant future, but is being created right now all around us and just is so often invisible to us. So in this podcast episode, we are going to share some of how we see the examples of transformation in the economy that are happening right now all around us. And Kevin, thank you for joining me. Thank you, So to kick us off, Kevin, let's dive right in. What do we mean by next steps or what's next for the next economy? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Last time or near a little bit ago in this series, we talked about kind of systems change and how even if we could wave a magic wand and all of the institutions, the businesses that help provision for the goods and services that we use to live and thrive as humans, all transformed overnight to nonprofits, B Corps, worker-owned cooperatives, multi-stakeholder cooperatives, institutions that are more responsive and adapted to creating goods and services in ways that benefit all life, more adapted to our needs as humans for a livable future. Even if that happened, that's kind of not enough to transform the full economy, the total set of ways in which we meet our needs to work for the benefit of all life. There are some areas of the economy, large areas, that really need to be rethought kind of from the ground up. And uh, it's being done, like you're saying. There is work being done, and we will highlight a number of case stories here But in the Next Economy MBA training, we like to highlight these fields or areas that we think are in the greatest need, if you will, for more people to actually innovate. And I guess that's an important point is there's areas of the economy where maybe we can constantly be innovating, certainly constantly be adapting to the needs of place and people. But for example, with regards to like 
a community owned or, and or worker owned grocery as an intermediate food distribution institution in the food system. There, there's certainly room for innovation, but we kind of know what to do. There's a lot of models. There's hundreds of them that exist, maybe thousands, and they certainly need to be adaptive and responsive, but there's a lot of known there. There's other areas where there's a lot of unknown, and we're going to mention those areas in a moment. And it's kind of like we bring it up in the training because there's a hope on our part that some of the Next Economy MBA participants and alumni feel inspired to say, well, maybe that's my calling or what pulls me is to do some innovative work in these areas. These areas are big and we'll mention them in a moment. And there's likely to be a lot of trial and error. So there's going to be some startups and attempts. And so knowing about what's being tried is a great way for us to shortcut through some of the effort, if you will, of trial and error. So the areas that we're talking about here include everything from the health system to the education system to the media system, some of the things that we talked about last time in systems change. And we do hear about things. I mean, Aaron, what are the types of things that you are hearing about that get you excited about what's next or what's coming? What's on the front edge of the next economy? Oh my goodness. So many things. We are in a very, very fortunate position at Lift Economy that we get a lot of folks reaching out to us saying, hey, I want to start this, or I'm working on this problem, working on solving this. One of the things that we talk about in the MBA program, and we shared a little bit about in our last session, is just how corrupted our governance system is in terms of how much economy has subsumed the way policies get made and decisions get made. People get elected. It's such an expensive undertaking to get elected in so-called United States government. And our friend Ramin Sarabi has taught us a lot about this work to advance citizens' assemblies as an entirely transformative way to do governance. And he's working now with an organization called Democracy Next to advance more citizen assemblies, which essentially counters that like election cycle by saying, how can we do governance where more people are engaged as quote unquote elected officials or, or folks in decision-making power? And that rotates on a, on a more regular cycle with more opportunities for all of us to contribute to governance I get really excited about time banks and alternative currencies that folks come to us with. We get very inspired by folks that are reimagining the way they're doing retirement, and a number of them are members of our Next Egg project and innovating on self-directed savings or investment plans and not relegating the decision-making of how those assets are allocated to someone else, i.e. a mutual fund advisor or an investment fiduciary, and even folks taking money out of their retirement entirely and taking tax hits early on as a stance to turn that money into reparations or giving that money away. Oh my gosh, other things that really get us inspired, Next Economy accounting or co-op accounting software that is innovative, that factors in more than just the financials. There's Boston Ujima Project has a really interesting way of doing reporting where they're encapsulating more than just the numbers, but encapsulating 
waste reductions and energy savings and renewable energy in sort of a financial dashboard, if you will. And then all this work in the commons, folks recommoning housing and land, true examples of the sharing economy are really potent where, where folks can access needed goods and services without having to own them. Data privacy, platform cooperatives, the federated cooperative movement, and ecosystem restoration business models that are really striving to have built into the model a way to reciprocate and give back and heal and restore ecosystem and steward lands that have been degraded over time. Cooperative climate insurance is something we get to (laughs) sometimes hear about. Needs a lot more. Insurance is one of those areas that needs a lot more innovations. All, All of these are areas that they're potentially one-offs in a lot of cases, or two-offs or ten-offs. They're, they're not a critical mass yet. And so that's why we're doing this podcast, to share out some of the stories and ideas and enroll more co-conspirators to create more of these models and support more of these models. So, Kevin... We also talk about the, dif- so that's a good segue actually to the different roles that people can play. Could you talk about what the different roles are that we've seen, like these big buckets of depending on someone's character or personality, how they might show up and, and why is it important to kind of know our roles and see where we might fit in? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. So as we share our enthusiasm about these areas, a lot of other people get excited as well. And so we might talk about examples of starting something or growing an initiative that is innovative or cutting edge. And I mentioned earlier that there's likely going to be a lot of trial and error, meaning there's very much the possibility that there will be failure and struggle and lots of labor and effort. And so privilege and positionality comes to mind is that some people will give us feedback, well, I'm not in a good position to start a new endeavor in a big area like education or healthcare or recommoning or insurance. And so starting something feels daunting. And so we found it really important to remind everybody that there's multiple roles to play in working on what's next for the next economy. Some people play the role of being just an idea person, an ideator, dreaming in to the imagination. Maybe it gets written down in terms of sci-fi or cli-fi or some type of narrative literature or just a blog or a podcast or a visioning, or it's just sharing ideas in community. So just dreaming into what's possible is a, a huge need without necessarily being the person that has to coordinate and organize and access resources and work with teams and, and recruit people and, and so forth. There's another role, which is to actually creating something. So starting something from scratch is the one of the, the entrepreneurial role. And for certain people who feel that calling and they're in a position and with the privilege and positionality to be able to take on the, the potential risks of time and energy and resource risks that, that go into starting something, that is another role that is really important in developing these types of projects. Another role is to actually be a supporter, which could take on a lot of different kind of ways. So just becoming aware of what's happening 
and what projects are being attempted. And maybe that means becoming a customer or an investor or just an advocate. Volunteer. A volunteer. There's a number of ways to be involved without having to be the person starting or the team that's starting or growing something. And then another role that we found to actually be really important is actually to be a researcher and learner. There's so much to know about what's been tried before, all the prior art in all these different fields. There's a lot of nuances when looking at something like recombining the land. There's a lot of law and infrastructure, if you will, social infrastructure, the covenants and agreements and historical, historic, based in history, these ideas that have codified into different structures and cultural norms, and actually understanding where those come from and maybe what's been tried, maybe how to hack existing structures or where we need to actually transform, both transform those, that cultural infrastructure, as well as innovate on the forms and structures of the you know, intermediate institutions, the new next economy institutions. All of that requires a lot of learning and detail. Aaron mentioned like retirement. There's a whole body of law in the United States called ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, and it's very dense and complex and nuanced. And it requires time and effort and energy to understand how we can navigate our way through that to actually do effective innovation to change our cultural relationship to retirement and then structurally how to leverage any assets that were positioned for retirement to to actually create a livable future, just as an example. So there's a bunch of different roles, but we like to just remind people about what they are. I'm wondering, Aaron, if we could dive into one of these big areas and how we think about the types of efforts that are underway. Can we take a look at health? I mean, in the context of what's broken about business as usual healthcare, especially in the United States, what can we say about and what do we see about what's next for healthcare? Yes. Just one point on the roles before we go into health is that when we say researcher or learner, we're not necessarily implying in a formal academic institution, right? So this can be, yeah, holding this as a much more broad role that we see a lot of research just happening outside of those formal structures. And that's really important too. So yeah, I just wanted to double click on that because I know commonly when we talk about researcher, people immediately go to, oh, you got to get a PhD or (laughs) we could talk more about that when we get to education. So yeah, in health, we've touched on some of the context of what's broken about the business as usual healthcare. There's a lot of kind of perverse incentives right now around kind of the ownership model around healthcare provision in this country. It tends to be most of us are are coming into contact with healthcare that we might categorize as disease care rather than healthcare because it's really not preventative at all. It's just addressing when folks get really sick, addressing the dis-ease or the disease it's pharma first, typically. How do we immediate, you know, because of the profit making model, it's really focused on supporting and upholding the drug companies and their profits. So there's been some attempts to kind of hack the system 
using existing permissible structures that can counter some of the perverse incentives. And one of those, well, when we look at the realm of insurance, we know that insurance companies by and large are structured to continue to not decentralize and distribute resources across many, but to concentrate and centralize profit amongst few. And so there has been some attempts to hack the system of insurance, if you will, to make it a bit more affordable. And one of the ones that we've been paying attention to is this notion of a health share network. And this health share network is essentially a way that folks have pooled resources in ways somewhat analogous but distinct from insurance. So these models are actually, they are exempt from a a legal aspect of the law that went into effect in 2014, the Affordable Care Act, that requires most families have some form of essential minimum insurance. And so Health share networks are a way where folks can actually join a health share network or a health care sharing ministry. Many of them are religious, which is a little, little odd, but some of them are secular now and can get access to a pool of resources that can come in and cover claims. They're not exactly called claims in, in the kind of health share network lingo, but essentially do the function of catastrophic coverage. So that's one thing that we're pretty excited and interested in, these health share networks. And then on the kind of primary care side, there is something that is a phenomenon that's been happening over the past couple decades, which is this phenomenon of direct primary care. It's kind of a membership model where instead of going to the doctor and paying for every single function of every procedure or medicine or small preventative measure that you do, the direct primary care is kind of a model where there is, it's a membership that covers, it's a monthly fee. And the goal from the direct primary care facilities standpoint is to really incentivize prevention and get folks to come in for as many times as they need in the month for preventative care, for kind of small procedures, but to over time reduce the need for folks to come in at all because so much of the focus would be on this kind of preventative model. Now, direct primary care have been growing rapidly across the country, but we've yet to find a DPC that is cooperatively owned where any profits through the direct primary care model that we've been researching has been We've talked to practitioners who started some of these DPCs, and they're relatively profitable having that kind of monthly fee model. And yet, we haven't found an innovation that shares that profits back with the community being served. So that's something we're pretty excited about as a as a realm to innovate. And lastly, I just wanted to say like a really, really exciting case story that's kind of inspired us along the way around this realm of what could be possible with a different system of care is this organization called the NUCA system of care, which is a primary care model founded in the 1990s in Southeast Alaska by South Central Foundation, which is an Alaska native healthcare organization. And something that inspires us about this model is 
both its success at reducing hospital activity and achieving kind of high performance in the standard U.S. healthcare effectiveness markers and being rooted in an integrated community-based approach. So weaving in storytelling as a way to bring to light the stories that have traditionally been the ways Indigenous culture and wisdom was passed on as it pertains to health, storytelling, music, arts and culture as an extension of the delivering of healthcare and social services. The NUCA team serves 229 federally recognized tribes with culturally relevant care. So it's a large institution that just gives us the excitement of what could be possible if it weren't the case that going to the doctor was this task that people put off for months and months and months until they get really, really sick. And because of all the reasons, it's cultural irrelevance in, in many cases. And, and what if healthcare was woven into the fabric of our society and the culture that we create on a daily basis to keep ourselves well? And knowing that there's a lot that is going to have to shift in economic activity, in legal reform, in transformation of the built environment to enable that type of vision, but just holding that as a, as a very exciting possibility for the future. Anything to add on that, Kevin? I know it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And well, there's a lot to say, right? Because we get excited about not only kind of hacking, if you will, or adapting permissible structures that exist. So medical cost sharing networks or health care networks exist. Direct primary care clinics exist. But like you mentioned, we haven't seen any of them really conform to all the possibilities of the expressions of next economy principles. And so I might add a few things we're looking for in the spirit of when we share a lot of what's next for the next economy, we hope that it catches somebody's attention to be like, I want to start that multi-stakeholder cooperative direct primary care clinic. I want to talk about that care model in particular because you mentioned these perverse incentives, but in capitalism or in the business as usual economy, it seems almost shocking to me just how deeply baked in the perversity is because the perversion. Because here, if I'm a medical care professional, let's say I'm a massage therapist or some type of manual therapy practitioner for providing for wellness, well-being or health or treating discomfort or disease. If I truly cured my patients when they came in, or I'm an herbalist, if I, I treated the patients and truly cured them, taught them how to make their own medicine from wild crafting and wild foraging herbs or growing their own herbs, and they never came back to my clinic, that's terrible for me to be able to meet my needs and pay rent and survive as an herbalist. The perversion is I actually have to have them coming back and paying me more money. And no care professional would kind of admit to like the pressure that that creates on them necessarily. They might not see it that way, but that's kind of a microcosm of the whole system. Even the insurance, the business as usual insurance companies under that Affordable Care Act you mentioned, their profits as an organization even or as a nonprofit, their growth as an institution is limited by the number of claims, meaning a sicker population is the only way for them to make more money. That is so perverse, right? So even somewhere deep down, they actually need more people to be more sick. And 
that's why it's one of these big next areas that has to be innovated, has to be innovated on and reformed or transformed. But if you are somebody out there and you're like, I, I can imagine coordinating care professionals into a direct primary care clinic where we're able to provide for a panel of you know patients in my community. Maybe there's a sliding scale or some type of offering. Maybe it's from $25 a month up to $100 a month or more and getting a couple hundred or thousands of people in the community to sign up for this kind of preventive clinic. There's a couple things we've heard from multiple practitioners that we've interviewed that if they could wave a magic wand, they would have other parts to the care model. They would have some type of health coaching or patient advocacy built in so that if a somebody was presenting with, hey, I might have needs here, there's somebody who could say, well, you might consider manual therapy for this, or you might look at your diet and talk to the dietitian, or even do cookery training to look how to eat more healthy at home. Or you should talk to this person who specializes in sleep and sleep studies and, and helping people with that. Or here's a psychotherapist who can help you, or you might consider a osteopath or all the various types of modalities that exist. Having somebody be able to route people around is something that a lot of clinicians who are embracing of integrative approaches would want to have. And then I mentioned diet and nutrition. We have seen some clinics that have integrated these ideas, but no direct primary care clinic, certainly not a cooperative direct primary care clinic where they have like a kitchen or a pantry or gardens or a farm actually integrated into the very facility. So it's like, hey, what does it mean to prepare healthy meals? Well, here's a kitchen right here. Let's let's learn how to prepare meals, which has a lot to do with health and well-being lifestyle. Or that we've heard from doctors and medical care professionals that it'd be great if there was like a gym or like someplace for activity. So it's like, hey, I want you to get your heart rate up. This is what it looks like. Let's do, there's a swimming pool and a yoga studio or a, a gym with equipment on site at the clinic. That's part of health. And meditation, mindfulness classes, and birth center and hospice services could be integrated. And there are some co-ops. I, I should mention the courageous work of midwives in particular, midwives and doulas who have cooperativized and provide kind of services to their communities. I think there's this huge opportunity to create more of a well-being institution that, or institutions as a model for kind of these integrated facilities. And I'll mention one other thing. is like if, when you start to stretch your imagination about what this could look like, I just want to highlight, again, these perverse incentives and in trying to integrate or hack the existing system. We've met with some professionals like Anna O'Malley from the Commonweal. Natura. Natura Institute, thank you, comes to mind. And the work that she's been doing in terms of circles of care, working with multiple individuals, especially with non-communicable diseases, where the largest cost centers of the business as usual kind of health system. So something like type 2 diabetes, as an example. Instead of working as a physician with one patient at a time, Anna is innovating on working with, and Aaron, you might know more about this, maybe a dozen at a time or 10 or, or so, one physician or trained physician who can answer people's questions and then kind of a peer group of people who all have a similar or the same condition 
and they can discuss like, hey, I'm using turmeric for my inflammation, or I'm doing this, or I'm walking, and they can form peer, you know, accountability buddy type systems or walking groups or activity groups or mutual support for how to transform their diet or some of the other preventive approaches to treating non-communicable diseases like type 2 diabetes. And turns out that under the existing payer system with CBT codes, and if you were a physician and you wanted to do medical circles, you can't. You can't charge for it under the existing system. So you actually need something like a direct primary care clinic that is funded in this alternative approach in order to actually, or a nonprofit is another way to do it. So there's a lot of room for the imagination. So Aaron, I just wanted to add on a couple of little pieces there to that health story. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning too, because a lot of folks might be familiar with the amazing political advocacy work around advocating in this country for a single payer model in terms of how people access care just in general, how people are able to afford care. And I think what we're talking about is recognizing that, of course, we need to advocate for single payer. That's a critical part of the model. And it might address the coverage or access problem, but it's still, even if we had single payer tomorrow in this country, we would still have a broken care model where people are disenfranchised because of implicit bias in the system. And the physicians are at very, very severe risk of burnout because they're so packing in all these consultations every single day. There's so much that's broken about the care model that single payer alone is not going to solve that part of the equation. All right. Should we move on to the next big, exciting bucket, which we talked about last time? We talked about some of the entrenched problems around how we educate our young ones and ourselves. What about education? What is next for education, Kevin? Yeah, in some ways, education really is at the heart of it, right? The heart of all these different problems and opportunities, as we talked about kind of the problems with a the education system as it exists, including multi-billions of dollars of student debt, an indentured generation that's ill-equipped to take on some of the necessary roles for maintaining civilization. Those roles, of course, are need to adapt at this moment, and the education is stuck in a mostly an industrial model that has created an enormity of problems. It's, of course, not accessible to everybody. We talked about this last time, all the things that need to change in that system. Well, what we're seeing is kind of in principle, in a different approach to education, there's some of the themes or principles that we're seeing woven in would be democratic participation of the different stakeholders in education. So that means the students themselves or the teachers or educators or parents it's childhood education. There's a variety of stakeholders involved in having some participation in terms of what is being taught and how it's being taught, rather than assigning that to some type of entrenched legacy system of an industrial model. And having kind of the participation be part of the community. So maybe the idea of schools, until we get through the process of transforming the nature of the state and how we do governance, we'll probably see more experiments in cooperative or community-owned schools. There's a many, a plethora of cooperative, community cooperative nursery schools 
but extending that concept through early education or even into adult education. This idea of sharing, rather than schools being for-profit, as a lot of private schools, that's one of the movement in education, and this idea of maximizing earnings, but that same impetus of having community participation and so that if there are any surpluses generated, they get democratically governed and the, how to u- utilize any surpluses is actually decided by the community itself. Of course, then there's like the curriculum and like how education is done. So in principle, we're seeing more self-directed and project-based, really fostering the innate interests of children or adults, humans. So this idea of total human development. We're just talking about healthcare and one of the big missing pieces, I think, from a lot of people's education is like, how does my body work and what's important for my health? What about the social determinants of health and the environment? So there's a whole system of considerations that could be woven into what we call education that are typically now left out. Of course, multimodality, multicultural, multilingual, multi-perspective, so much of the education in the United States, for example, is grounded in a white supremacist, Eurocentric kind of view of history and the world. And it lacks a lot of multicultural, multi-perspective, pluralistic types of information. And then the entire kind of pedagogical approach to education could be based on the idea of societal transformation, or at least that the necessary condition for humanity to live into a livable future could be part of what is in education. And we're seeing a lot of efforts, like Aaron said, we're in this privileged position of seeing things and research and learners have brought to our attention things like the Bog schools from namesake Grace Lee Boggs. These are schools that they're able to exist within the existing structures, but they use project-based learning models, which allows more learning by doing. There's a strong focus on social justice and students are encouraged to participate in community service projects. So one of the big missing pieces from a lot of education environments, especially for youth, is the ability to just actually solve problems in the community, to have a sense of meaning rather than to take some standardized exam to regurgitate information that is not useful to the community. The BOG schools also provide a variety of learning pathways so students can take the approach that, choose the approach that best suits their their learning style. And this idea of a commitment to personalized learning, so working with teachers to create a customized learning plan for each individual. That, as an example, the BOG schools are a model of what is probably, there's a whole set of I guess, self-directed learning modalities that are out there. There's Waldorf and Montessori and other neo-humanist type of approaches to childhood education that are more whole person, more self-directed. There's a lot of dogma in those systems. And so there's some caution. And and again, a lot of those modalities or pedagogical kind of containers for learning that emerge, we've seen them emerge in places of privilege, where there's a large expense to participate, not in all of them, but in many of them. So this idea of making those models of self-directed learning, whole human learning, making them accessible is something, a great project 
that is left undone. And we do think cooperative type models of shared governance, of shared facilities, even using people's homes or open space or common space as the classroom, as the learning, the facility, if you will, can reduce that cost and make that type of education more accessible. There's also, of course, a whole body of work in democratic schooling, like the Summerhill School in England. This is where students participate in self-governance. So they have a large degree of control over their own education. There's actually regular meetings to discuss school policies, the curriculum, and other matters. Really transferring the skills to the students for how to make collective decisions, which are skills that are really missing in large parts of the human population to practice having a voice in decision making, learning how to facilitate collective decision making and problem solving. Also, there's a focus in the Summerhill schools on self-awareness and collaboration. I would also mention some of the models of ecological education. So there's the Green School in Bali, and there's a number of permaculture educators that have developed curriculum and there's middle schools and high schools that are integrating more ecological education into the core curriculum or even in a university setting there's Gaia University which has core prerequisites of more whole systems perspective and ecological education which are important missing pieces from most of the business as usual kind of education system and then there's liberatory orientation a model that we mentioned in the training, My Reflection Matters Village. It's kind of a virtual learning community where education, as they say, education, healing, and liberation intersect. So the idea of collective liberation and healing as intrinsic to the educational experience. Another model that we reference in the training, the Ecocene, E-C-O-C-E-N-E, school, ecocene.school. It's an online platform with programs, as they say, for connecting self, community, and planet. So there's a number of liberatory-oriented educational institutions and emergent platforms and communities. There's also uh, rites of passage. Is a, There's critical social functions that, especially for teenagers, that schooling is kind of de facto providing schooling institutions, but I think very clumsily in leaving a lot of people out and creating a lot of harm and trauma. And so some people have taken on the idea of providing rites of passage in an institutional setting alternative to schooling. Of course, there's free schools, which is a way of the idea of embedding education into the community. And of course, there's a number of nonprofits and organizations that we've worked with and that we highlight in the training that are providing more apprenticeship type of models where a lot of the learning, you know, we've mentioned them a number of times, but the Sustainable Economies Law Center has a program where people who want to be credentialed or barred as a lawyer passing the bar exam, turns out that in some states, I think California being one of them, you can train with lawyers under a certain set of conditions and actually take the bar exam and become a credentialed legal professional without having to take on the expense and maybe the debt burden of law school, a business as usual at law school. And so this idea of apprenticeship woven into a lot of vocations and callings is another big important part of this what's next for education. 
I'll mention one more thing. There's the futurist and educational philosopher Zach Stein talks about this idea of learning hubs, kind of gutting out the high schools and universities, kind of built on the factory model of the 20th century kind of education, like literally he's talking about rebuilding kind of what he would call 21st century temples of learning, which in his articulation of it would be like public libraries, museums, co-working centers, fab labs, computer labs, cooperative child care centers, all with citizen teacher scientists, basically breaking down the idea that there's professional teachers per se. There might be great learning facilitators, but that everyday citizens have skills to teach and share. And then breaking down some of the age segregation kind of there's an old model of education that we kind of talked about last time in systems change that needs to be broken and zach has this idea of these decentralized kind of pop-up classrooms and special interest groups kind of network together in a with social connection woven through as a lifelong learning not just for childhood education but all the way through adults we've seen pieces of that but we've never seen i haven't yet seen any one of those institutions really emerge as, say, a cooperative or a community institution. And so there's a lot of work left to be undone. We've highlighted some of the things that haven't done. Aaron, what, I know I missed a thousand different things because there's so much to say about these, but do you want to jump in and add to anything on the education piece? I just think that our listeners probably are feeling their minds open wide. We so often get this question, I'm thinking about going back to grad school. And we often want to jokingly and just in sincerity say, there's so many other options apart from what we have known as quote unquote schooling. And so I love, I love that you gave this really broad strokes overview of all the different ways that education and learning and personal growth can show up in the next economy. We definitely need a better grasp on the plurality of ways to learn and to grow. So I think you did a great job. Thanks, Erin. I want to turn to another big topic. These are such so big, so for, this might be one of our longest episodes in the series here, but I think they're worth talking about. Erin, what about housing and land use and kind of the way we provision shelter? What's next in the next economy in that huge area? Yeah, Kevin, we've already mentioned in this series that Land can be considered the largest asset in the global business-as-usual economy, and it has been this kind of asset base, the theft of this asset base, stealing and commodifying. It's been pointed out that most of the land that is owned, quote-unquote, was stolen through imperial colonization. And we've discussed that one of the most common and important uses of land is for housing. So when we think about one of the things that brings us the most hope is this movement to decommodify housing. Most people will f- immediately think, oh, land trust. But there's actually so much more to it than than just land trust. There's these movements of really, because land trusts are often nonprofits, nonprofit run, which is one form of a different form of ownership than a for-profit company, but certainly still has many of the same aspects of hierarchy and control that, that we see. So when we talk about commons ownership, we're talking about these really exciting models of people coming together to create 
covenants and agreements around how decision-making gets decentralized across many people, not just a small few people at the top of the organization, for how to collectively govern housing. And a couple examples many of our listeners might be familiar with us mentioning the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, which is based in San Francisco Bay Area, unceded Ohlone territory. And essentially, there's four stakeholders that co-own that cooperative. There's the tenant owners, those that actually steward and live in the properties they acquire. There's investor owners. There's the staff worker owners. And then there's community members who can join for as little as $10 a year and have a stake in decision-making. And collectively, they're negotiating all of those stakeholder needs to take housing properties off of the speculative market and hold it in perpetuity in the cooperative model. And we are really inspired by them, but there's a lot of organizations around the country that are also inspired by East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative or this that is a product of this larger movement. We're also really inspired by an organization called the Guild in Atlanta that's doing very comparable work to decommodify housing in Atlanta and to be able to have new models in a in an area of the country that's rapidly gentrifying and really properties are, are deeply at risk of being bought and sold and displacing communities, especially communities of color that have been there for years and have created the kind of why the communities and neighborhoods are so desirable and attractive in the first place. And of course, that pattern of gentrification is is not unique to Atlanta. It's it's being seen all across the country. There's a local code, Kansas City, which has an innovative model of kind of community-determined development that looks at, again, shares ownership, but looks at these sort of large properties that are maybe in need of some rehabilitation or retrofit and to retrofit them in a way that is really serving the needs and the desires and wants of the community, the direct neighborhood around them, as opposed to some outside developer. So commons ownership, we could talk for days and days about that as being the foundational component of re of transforming our relationship to land and housing. But then there's all these really interesting complementary aspects of that, those commons ownership models in terms of, okay, how do we do, I mentioned development with local code. How do we do, what if there were real estate developers, if you will, real estate development companies that were multi-stakeholder that kind of knew how to take a project from implement from design to implementation, but weren't solely driven by profit, but were, again, democratically, there was democratic decision-making woven in. There was a desire to create more ecosystem function, more connectivity, more assets in the neighborhood, and really embedded in the neighborhood and the culture. So we're holding out for multi-stakeholder real estate development companies. Zoning reform, one of the organizations that we've had the privilege of working with for a long time is Opticos Design. I don't know if you want to mention, Kevin, some of the zoning reform they're, they're working on. Yeah, I mean, it, so it turns out that when in different parts of the world, when there's a need to develop housing there and developers and people get involved, why is it that either like 
skyscrapers or single family homes, which are atomizing, separating, kind of reinforcing individualism and obviously not well suited for shared transportation, shared assets, certainly not for like co-living or co-housing and some of the other opportunities for reducing our costs and changing our lifestyles. A lot of it ends up because of the way codes were written for land use. And OptiCoast Design has done a lot of innovative work on code reform for form-based codes so that to make it easier for municipalities or even countries to change their zoning policies to allow for different forms of land use, including a whole area that they've innovated. The Opticos principals wrote a book on missing middle housing, this idea of some of the forms of housing highlighted in books like A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander and others that show that there's a kind of a right size to density that allow for a lot of the benefits of walkable neighborhoods, car-free neighborhoods, mixed use where people can live nearby where they work, and to lower the carbon footprint, but also to increase the community footprint, meaning like more people-to-people interaction, more sharing, more opportunities for collective governance. And they are, as a firm, they work with municipalities and developers to change the zoning and then to create more missing middle housing models as just an example. So the actual form of, so it's not just developing housing as like a skyscraper or single family homes, but like what form do they take? Yeah, absolutely. And there's innovations in zoning for tiny houses as well, the American Tiny House Association. So if we go beyond zoning reform and how we develop, there's innovations in just how we relate to the workforce, the actual way we build our shelter and the ways that perpetuates livelihoods that can be, again, extractive. And can we innovate and have cooperatives? Could we even have training, different forms of education? Again, going back to the last piece where we talked about education reform, can we educate ourselves differently and merge that with the need to reimagine the way we build and the way we establish shelter? We're really inspired by this organization called Earthbound Building that is a Black-owned, worker-owned construction firm specializing in natural building and timber frame construction. And the weaving in of ecology and connection to natural materials and connection to carbon sequestration and rebalancing of the carbon cycle and the democratic ownership model. It's just a a beautiful match in terms of offering pathways and imagination around what, what could be an alternative to the kind of conventional construction industry where there's just a lot of focus on optimization of profit and optimization of how big of buildings we can build and how fast can we build them and disregard of the material consequences of how much materials and energy and embodied carbon goes into that building. There's also another worker on cooperative called New Framework Cooperative that has just done a tremendous amount of innovation and research on some different panelized ways to make natural building more efficient, 
also making it more accessible, having language justice woven into their their building industry. And then there's workforce training programs like Lyme Foundation out of Sonoma County that empowers young folks to get into high-paying building and trades pathways and does it with an ecological leaning. There's a lot of their, their students have gone through and learned how to build a tiny house and now are building tiny houses professionally. So yeah, there's more that we could talk about. I mean, edible landscaping and green infrastructure is a huge piece. We're really inspired by all the cooperatives we know of, like Dig Cooperative here in the Bay that does green building installations, rainwater, gray water, and edible landscaping. This notion that instead of just having a, a landscape that gets installed once you build a house that's just just there to prop up the speculation and the asset value of the house, what if it would be so beautiful and also so vibrantly productive that families and kids can go out and pick their nourishment from their landscape through the use of perennial agriculture, perennial landscaping plants that also produce edible berries and edible greens. So there's so much more to talk about in terms of reimagining our relationship to shelter and the way we provision that. But those are just a few of the things that get us inspired. And then we're, we are holding out for a cooperative climate insurance because we know that so much of the next few decades, are, the reality is that we are already experiencing the repercussions of a changing climate and folks are already needing to migrate to safer areas or to different areas. And so this notion that we will be resettling, populations will be migrating and resettling in new ways as a result of the climate crisis, having institutions that can facilitate that without, again, perpetuating this centralization of profit and exploitation for a few folks at the top to profit off of these migrations, but to have ways where we have institutions that can facilitate that resettlement in ways that transform our relationship to land and to each other and to resources and sharing. Anything to add on housing, Kevin? I think just what you mentioned is that through all the examples you mentioned, Erin, it's just highlighted like there's an effort happening in every realm, right? There is a decommodification movement and a recombining of land to provide for housing as a human right and permanently affordable living. And separately and usually not connected to that, there's a movement for the form of that housing to enable co-housing and sharing. And there's a movement separate from those movements to create housing assets that generate their own energy and have edible landscapes to provide for more food security, as well as enhance the biodiversity of their place through conservation hydrology and water conservation. And there's a movement of training people to do the development and build that housing, but do it in a way that's equitable and sharing of surplus through cooperative models. And, but separate from that, there's efforts to change the building materials to be carbon sequestering, biodiversity enhancing, and great projects. I'd be remiss not to mention Green Canopy, one of the companies we've worked for who's doing some 
great work. They've merged with a company called Node doing these timber frame buildings. So there's so much happening, but it's just not yet. We haven't yet seen it fully connected where there's an effort that actually has all those things together rather than them just being disparate, separate efforts. So so much great work to do. But I think you captured so many launching off points for anybody who wants to do innovative work in this huge area of housing and land use. Kevin, I am sensing, and maybe this is true for our listeners as well, that we might need to do a part two on this one (laughs) before continuing on because, yeah, we had queued up a few more areas to talk about in this podcast, but I'm wondering if maybe we pause here, see what our listeners say to us about what they want to hear more about or what inspires them and maybe reconvene another time to go deeper. That sounds great, Aaron. Yeah, just as a foreshadowing and in the Next Economy MBA training in this session 18, we also talk about media systems and arts and culture and sometimes even open source appropriate technology. There's these big areas that are ripe for innovation in alignment with Next Economy principles. And if those things sound interesting to you, let us know, write to us or, you know, join the training and and we can go deeper there. Lots of ways to continue learning, but you can consider this like an, we're unashamed to like say that we need help in these areas. These are areas that are intrinsic to our vision for an economy that works for the benefit of all life. And whereas there is a lot of work being done, as we just kind of highlighted, they're not all connected or whole. And so this idea of wholeness or a whole whole set of activities for people who are taking a first principles approach to innovating in these areas, really important. And we'd love to be in partnership with you. So if you found any inspiration or excitement about any of these areas, let's definitely be in touch. And if that means doing another podcast session to go deeper into the other areas, absolutely. I'd be happy to do it. Well, thank you, Kevin, so much. And thank you especially to all of our alumni, because a lot of this inspiration has been built over the cohort years in partnership and in learning from what our alumni are paying attention to, what they're working on, and also so many of our clients. So thank you to anyone out there who's listening, who's doing the work of building these alternative models and stewarding and investing in them and supporting them and advocating for them. We are really ready to collaborate and hopefully make the work a little bit easier by being in community on it. Thank you, Erin. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.